This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Happy Sabbath once again, everyone. It has been a blessed Sabbath indeed. Um, so it's a big topic we have, and um, it's going to be hard to cover it in an hour. So once again, pray for me so that I will be able to do this subject justice, even though it's a very um, broad subject and deep subject, and it has a lot of implications. And I'm certainly not equal to delivering it myself, but um, God is able. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the way that you have blessed throughout this conference. Thank you for the way you have blessed on this Sabbath day. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into this last subject, that you would give us eyes to see you. We would give us eyes um, to see ourselves the way you see us, and that you would give us your eyes to see the world around us. I pray that you would give me your spirit. You know, once again, that I am not able to communicate this um, clearly, but you have said, who has made man's mouth? And I pray that since you have made my mouth, you will now fill my mouth with your words and um, control my mouth by your spirit, and that you would enable all those listening to um, really understand your truth, and that if I say something amiss, they would not... They would not note it. They would um, just hear that which comes from your word. Be with us all and give us your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is the last in the series. We've been looking at the solution to uh, being lukewarm, how to have that passionate love for God, how to be hot for him. And in the previous two sessions on, on uh, Thursday after, uh, evening and then Friday, we were talking about first faith, and then we talked about the righteousness of Christ yesterday and how that applies to our lives. And I, can't, I don't think I can emphasize this enough, because the, the, um, you know, the seminar is called Pure Passion. But we cannot gain love simply by fixating on the fact that we don't have enough love for God and that we need to love him more. Um, love for him does not come that way. Love, res- love springs up naturally when the right conditions are in place. And so I said yesterday, faith is that soil out of which the plant of love can grow. And um, the righteousness of Christ is what keeps that plant alive. Um, but I would say that, you know, if I continue on with the analogy, and honestly, I haven't thought of the analogy that much, so if, there's, if you immediately think of flaws in the analogy... Pardon me for that. But if you think of the uh, concept of being able to see things the way God sees them, and of course we are humans, we are not God, we are not holy, holy, holy as he is, and so we naturally view things very differently than he does, but he can give us his eyes through that supernatural process that we were talking about yesterday, of his grace being imparted to us and being given to us, which comes by faith. These things are all extremely, extremely interconnected. That's why he gives them in this package of these three things that we need to buy of him. Because they, they help each other, they work with each other. You can't understand God without faith, but understanding God brings faith. 
And so they're all extremely interconnected. Um, and when we learn to see him and to see ourselves and to see the world around us as he does, and I would, I would say particularly understanding him, it's the rain, it's the sunshine, it is everything that makes the plant of love grow. So give me your eyes. Correcting biased views of God and ourselves and seeing the world through the eyes of heaven. Uh, we started with this verse here, but we're going to uh, just cut to the chase here. I counsel thee to anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. That's the last remedy that he recommended. And this is going to be the subject of our talk um, uh, this afternoon. So let's start with understanding God. Who is the Lord? We have two examples here, Pharaoh versus Isaiah. You, under, you remember when Moses comes and he's like, you know, the God of Israel has met with us. We need to go out into the wilderness three days away to have a little worship. And, and what was Pharaoh's response? Who is Jehovah? I don't know Jehovah. I'm not going to let Israel go. Instant rebellion. And however, Pharaoh makes a very accurate assessment. Who is Jehovah? I know not Jehovah. He spoke the truth. Isaiah, on the other hand, well, Pharaoh, I should say, before I move on to Isaiah, Pharaoh, as we know, over the next duration of time, uh, he encountered Jehovah, didn't he? At the end, what did he end up doing? He obeyed Jehovah. Unwillingly, in, in many respects, I mean, he did send the Israelites out and he wanted them to get out. Shortly thereafter, he changed his mind and wanted them back. But in the end, once he had encountered God, and unfortunately because of how hard his heart was, he had to encounter the justice of God and he refused to accept the mercy of God. However, at the end, he ended up obeying God. And this is what will take place here on planet Earth. Those who refuse to know the Lord and understand him and humble their hearts before him will in the end end up confessing his justice and his mercy. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. That's going to come from both the righteous and from the wicked. Because in the end, when you encounter God, you will obey him. Isaiah. This is someone that did know the Lord. And we, we recall the story in Isaiah 6 where he, he, is in, he has this vision of the heavenly temple and he sees God high and lifted up and he, he gets a realization of who God really is. And what is his response? Utter humility. Utter humility and falling down before God. But what happens right after that? The coal comes, it's put on his lips, and the comment is made, Lo, this has touched thy lips. Your, your sin is taken away and your iniquity is purged. Am I getting feedback from this thing? If we really know the Lord, it results in salvation. So who is the Lord? Thus saith the Lord, this is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth, verse 24, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So here's a statement of God. Don't glory in your wisdom, 
Don't glory in your might. Don't glory in your riches. The one thing there is to glory about is understanding and knowing me. That I, this is God speaking, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. Where? In the earth. Now why in the earth? Why is it that I am the Lord that exercise those things in the earth? Well, it's because of this mess that we have going on down here. And nothing is so clearly revealing the character of God than the way in which he is dealing with this mess down here. And it's going to be the study of the redeemed throughout all ages. So when you have God saying, if you understand and you know me, if you understand and know that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth, in the middle of this mess, in the middle of this rubbish, if you know, that's what you have to glory about. That's what the universe is going to have to glory about. Understanding God's dealings with this great controversy that is going on right now. And the result of understanding how he deals with it is what is going to cause the universe to fall so in love with God as to render them eternally secure. That no one's going to want to experiment with transgression. And what if God is withholding something from me again? That's never going to happen again. Why? Because of the way he has dealt with us here. Understanding and knowing God and the way he exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So in biblical history, we see a distinct repetition of a pattern. In days of apostasy, there was increased confusion over what God is like and what he desires and expects. We're going to look at a biblical case of this in just a moment. The result is increased departure from him, which in turn results in even greater misunderstanding of his nature and his law, which is an expression of his character, right? So let's look at the anatomy of apostasy. Usually, so these are those who were originally close to God, right? It's apostasy, so we're close and then apostatizing. Usually starts out with carelessness toward God. We talked about Cain yesterday. Why should it matter if I have to bring a lamb versus if I just bring my fruit? Carelessness towards God, which results in departure from him, which results in confusion over God's nature, will, and expectations. The farther we get away from God, the less we understand him. Then, the more confused we become, the farther we depart. Increased departure from him, which results in greater misunderstanding of God, which results in greater departure from him. And that cycle continues until either God is discarded altogether or the God, quote-unquote, that's being worshipped is entirely false. Idolatry. So let's look at a, a biblical uh, uh, case study here. Apostasy in the days of Jeremiah. We're just going to uh, summarize this because we have a lot to cover. Um, it started out with national carelessness towards the requirements of God. If you look in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.32, you find an instance where they're just kind of careless. Yeah, I mean, they, they do believe in, you know, obeying God and do what he said, but ah, it's not that important. So they're just kind of careless. Shortly thereafter, in the book of Jeremiah, you start finding conflicting views of the will and nature of God. This is where you have that instance where the false prophets, like, or Jeremiah is like, we're going to go into captivity, and the false prophets like, no, in two years' time, we're going to be completely free. All that stuff that was carried to Babylon is going to be all back here. And there's like a lot of different voices saying, this is what God says. No, this is what God says. No, this is what God says. Conflicting views. 
That continues until you get rejection of God for a false view of God. Eventually, in Jeremiah 43, verse 2, you have an instance where Jeremiah tells them what God says, and what is their response? No longer is there this confusion of, oh, this person says this and that person says that. In this case, Jeremiah tells them, Jeremiah 43, verse 2, Jeremiah tells them, this is what God said, and they turn around and say, no, that is not what God said. You're lying. So they start openly rejecting the reality of God for a false view of God. And in the end, when you hit Jeremiah 44, 16, you get open and blatant rejection of God altogether. All the pretense goes down and they're saying, we're going to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. And it all started not by saying at the beginning, let's burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. No, it started out by just national carelessness, which resulted in less discernment of who God was. And revivals are the opposite of that. Revivals are always the result of a clear revelation of God and an understanding of His nature and His will as in Josiah, Hezekiah, Ezra, when these big uh, revivals took place in the nation of Israel, they were always a result of encountering the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and getting a new view of God's nature, His will, His requirements, who He is, and suddenly you see these massive revivals taking place. What the people of God desperately need in this day and age, when there is a ton of voices saying what God is like. God is like this, God is like that. You can just go into the Christian bookstore, pull the books off the shelf, and find many views of what God is like. What the people of God desperately need in this day and age is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of all true revival. Not deciding I'm going to do something, but simply the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it changes a person like it changed Isaiah. So who is he? Let's look at Exodus 43. Exodus 43, verse 5 through 7, and this is one of the clearest articulations that God gives of himself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, this is Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God. And I love that right there because it's an actual, when he says the Lord, the Lord God, it's a repetition and a stronger version. So first he says basically the self-existent one, that's what the Lord means, the self-existent one. But then when it says the Lord God, he adds a, a amplifying word that means like the self-existent, the, the mighty self-existent one. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Before I finish reading that, let me say, all of us have a view of God based upon, hopefully, the Bible, hopefully the Bible, but also on our life experience, what our parents were like, what our life experience has been like, and such. Ultimately, we want our view of God to be based exclusively on the Bible, but we're all humans, and so all of us have a view of God that has been shaped by hopefully the Word of God, and also heavily influenced by our life experience. And so I would say as we read this and as we talk about who God is, let's try to divorce ourselves as much as possible from whom we assume God to be and who He has been in our experience, who we think, you know, how we think He has treated us or how we think He has, has come through or not come through for us, and simply try to listen, just listen for the Word of God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. 
keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, when you normally see this verse, usually they stop quoting here. But God continued, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Now, the first half of this passage and the second half of this passage for humans don't jive very well. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. We like that idea, although oftentimes our experience kind of fights with it. Keeping mercy for thousands, we love that. Forgiving iniquity, and look at these next two phrases that are right next to each other. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that well by no means clear the guilty. There isn't even a period there. It's one sentence, and we're like, keeping mercy and not clearing the guilty? How does, this, how does this balance? But it comes to one package in God. So let's view, let's, before we talk about this passage further, let's, um, let's review three distinct incorrect views of God. And often we can throw in mixtures of these, or we have maybe a, a weak version of one of these. I'm going to articulate them pretty clearly here. But as you, as you listen to it, think about your view of God, who you really think him to be, in your life and see if some of these play in. So the three common misconceptions of God. The first is the hipster God, the second is the curmudgeonly God, and the third one is the distant God. What are these? Let's start out with the hipster God. God loves me so much. He doesn't care what I do. He doesn't mind what I think, what I do, who or what I love, or how I entertain myself. I'm his precious child. His ideas change from age to age and culture to culture. He's not particular and just loves me while I live my life. He's my party Jesus. Now, some of you may be like, well, obviously this, I mean, there is some truth. It, it, there is some truth to most of these mixed in, but we distort them. For instance, I'm his precious child. That is accurate. However, sometimes what we do is not precious to him. If a child disobeys and gets severely hurt, is that action, I have a, a friend, Never mind. If a child disobeys and gets severely hurt, is that action precious to the parent? No, the action is not precious to the parent. Is the child precious to the parent? Yes. So there is some differentiation here. Um, ah, but I was going to say, some of what I'm presenting here is perhaps kind of the extreme view, because I want to make it clear how some of these things come into our lives. However, this phrase, he's my party, Jesus, I did not make that up. I heard that from an Adventist young person. These views are, <laughs> are amongst us and in our own lives sometimes. So that's the first hipster God. That's the first view, the hipster God. Let's read what God has to say, what the Bible has to say about God. In contrast to what I just read about the hipster God. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. For our God is a consuming fire. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Does that sound like a party, Jesus? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So here's just a small example of how we can have this view, and the Bible 
somewhat contradicts the view. Even though there is truth mixed into the view, we need to learn to differentiate the truth about who God is from the error of some of our views about him. Now, the Kermugganly God. God loves those who do what is right. True. He hates my sin and hates when I sin. I can never quite please him. He takes strict account of every wrong and keeps record of it in his book. Jesus died to forgive people, but my sin is so bad, I don't know if he can really forgive me. Or if he does, he's not excited about doing it. He's annoyed by my failures and wishes I'd get my act together, pray, seek him, and stop sinning. Now, once again, I am presenting these views in pretty blatant language, but I encourage all of us as we read through these views to really look at our own hearts and see where some of this thinking may be playing in. Maybe not in these words, not this clearly, but where some of this may be playing into our own experience and our own view. Do we sometimes feel that God is harsh and condemning? That when we sin, we're under his frown and displeasure? Do we ever feel that way? Let's read what the Bible has to say. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. I read this yesterday. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. Last view, the distant God. God doesn't seem very invested in a relationship with me. Where was he when I was abused, hurt, abandoned, mocked, and told I was worthless? Yes, he's up there, and I guess he's omnipotent, but he definitely doesn't use that omnipotence on my behalf. He's checked out from my life. He knows I exist, but doesn't care about much else. Either that, or he's pretty impotent. Where might this thinking play into our lives? What does the Word of God have to say, say about it? Precious verse. I love this verse. It melts my heart every time. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And not one of them, not one sparrow on planet Earth will fall to the ground without your Father, knowing and taking cognizance of what happened. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Does that sound like a distant God? O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is the reality of who God is. He's not the hipster God. He's not the curmuggingly God that's waiting to zap us at his first opportunity. He's not the distant God that's just sitting back and letting people die and never even noticing. He is none of those. Let's read this again, come back to this passage and, and look at it a little bit closer. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, starting in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful. That word in the Hebrew means full of compassion. 
gracious, to bend or stoop in kindness to, infer- to an inferior, to favor. Long-suffering. Now, this is a word that is, has been in newer translations commonly like translated as, as patience or something like that, but it's, to me, it's so much richer of a word that actually the word long-suffering encapsulates much better because the Hebrew actually comes from this word where, where it's talking about someone breathing really heavily, like in, 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 in passion or in, you know, if somebody's really like worked up and they're breathing heavily. It, the part of the word comes from that Hebrew word, where it's like God is feeling this so deeply that he's breathing heavily about it, and yet he restrains himself for a long time. This is not some God that doesn't care. He does care. Like I said yesterday, it does matter, yet he still pays. Long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. That truth means stability, certainty, truth, trustworthiness, keeping mercy for thousands, and forgiving, which means entirely absolving iniquity and transgression and sin. We could break down what those, each of those words mean in the Hebrew, but I would encourage you to, to look it up yourself, because we don't have time today. We're going to have to keep moving right along. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, those that desire that forgiveness, that, um, those that desire to be right with God, remember what we said yesterday, God does not mock us. If we have a desire to be right with God, it's because God has already planted that desire to be right. We didn't conjure up that desire ourselves. He gave us that desire because he's already drawing us to him so that he can reconcile us unto himself and forgive us all of our sins. And yet, those who refuse to come under that protection and that forgiveness of God that he's longing to draw us into will by no means be cleared. And then, of course, this last uh, sentence, very interesting, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We know today that ep- with epigenetics that that is about how long the, um, the choices of a person, that's about how far down they're going to be impacting their, their children and their children's children just through genetics. Very interesting, God making statements like that all the way back then. Do we understand that that is who God is? Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. They always were. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's not patient today and impatient tomorrow. He's always the same. How much does our view of God line up with the verses that I have read? Or how many of us say, in my experience, he has not been like that? In our experience, he has been like that. That is why it is so deep to understand his loving kindness and his judgment and his righteousness in the earth. Because in the earth, so many things are going on in this great controversy that truly understanding him is a difficult thing, but it is not impossible. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Really? What just happened? Did I just like exit my thing? Let's see here. Okay. The forbearance of God has been very great, so great that when we consider the continuous insult to his holy commandments, we marvel. The omnipotent one has been exerting, this is so interesting to me, the omnipotent one has been exerting a restraining power over his own attributes. 
Isn't that fascinating? But he will certainly arise to punish the wicked who so boldly defy the just claims of the Decalogue. We see that God's mercy and his justice, they, they can never be separated. They are one. They are one and they are one in our lives and they are one in the way he deals with the earth. What if we have a wrong view of God? So what if some of us are in here thinking, you know, you know, I understand technically that God is good and he is loving, and, but in my experience, you know, I just, I feel condemned. I feel that he doesn't, I don't feel his love. What if we have that, that struggle between the mind and what we know to be the case and the heart and what we feel? How can we reconcile those and bring the heart to truly understand him? Well, this is a... Um, deep question to answer, and I don't think I'm going to have time to do it justice today with the rest of the things that we need to cover. But I would say this, hold on, sorry, I just got myself confused in my notes. The best way is to expose ourselves to who he really is. That sounds like an oversimplification, but I'm going to give you a very practical example. When I was about 11 years old, I was molested by someone who was quite close to our family, as in we saw them frequently, it was an adult, we saw them, this person frequently, and my parents had done everything throughout our entire growing up years to so carefully protect us from negative experiences like that. But it only took just a few moments when I went out to the car one day. Now, after that took place, I felt extremely guilty about it because I had not physically resisted the person. And I thought that if I had, that because I had not physically resisted that person, I must be somehow like party to the crime. I some, somehow felt like I had really been participatory and therefore was just as guilty for God, before God for what had happened. And of course, now with a different perspective, I realized that you know, 11-year-old versus adult, there's, there's a lot of things playing in, <laughs> playing in there, and that as an 11-year-old, I probably was not carrying much guilt before God before what happened. But nonetheless, in my 11-year-old mind and over the next few years, I felt very guilty for what had happened. Extremely guilty. And I felt very condemned, and I would apologize to God for what happened, and I didn't particularly feel forgiven, and I would seek to repent again, and, and I, I struggled with this for some time. It was like I didn't feel forgiven and accepted and like this sin was cast behind God's back. Of course, again, now from my perspective, I'm like, well, I don't know if there was much sin on my part to be cast behind God's back, but I really felt like there was. And if you feel like there is, then that is bondage. You can't just ignore and say, well, that doesn't matter how I, how I feel. I did feel that way, and so it was affecting my life and it was affecting my view of God. Well, around that time, I remember in my devotions I was reading Desire of Ages and um, I had read Desire of Ages even before that, before I was 11, but I was reading it again and this was probably, I don't know if I was 12 or 13 at this point, but I, somewhere in there. And I came to the chapter Among Snares. And Among Snares is the chapter where Ellen White talks about the interaction between um, Jesus and the woman that was caught, caught in adultery and how he responds to her and how he talks to her and how he restores her. And it's powerful. It is a powerful chapter. It is so, it shows the re 
redemptiveness of Jesus Christ so clearly. And I read that and I realized that that is not how I felt God felt about me. Now, once again, as an 11-year-old child that was molested by an adult, I was not necessarily in the same set of circumstances. However, you never know what sort of circumstances. It is commonly believed that that was Mary Magdalene, of course, but that uh, the name is not associated with that woman in the Bible. And so I, I read that and I realized that my view of God was not like what I was reading here in Desire of Ages. And I was like, man, I, I, must, I must be misjudging God. Now, fortunately, I did come to that conclusion because some of us are tempted to read that and be like, no, that's wrong because I feel this way. If we feel differently than the word articulates about God, we're wrong, not the word. We're wrong. And I came to that conclusion. I was like, clearly, I'm wrong, even though I feel right. <laughs> but clearly, I'm wrong. And you know what I did? I read that chapter over and over and over and over again. Actually, for a number of years, not every day, but I would go back and revisit it very frequently, reading that chapter over and over and over again. And you know what? It changed my view of God exposing yourself to the truth. The more negative experiences you have been through, the more you have had a parent who has grossly misrepresented God or had an authority figure who has grossly misrepresented God or been through life circumstances that were extremely painful and extremely damaging and through the way you've dealt with that pain has warped your view of, of a good God, of a forgiving God or, or of a compassionate God or if you're other, on the other hand being like, woo, he's my party Jesus, I can do whatever I want reflecting back to the word and submerging ourselves in it over and over and over again. And the more you're surrounded by those circumstances, the more you need to be submerged. The more you are still in that circumstance where that authority figure is still grossly misrepresenting God, the more you have to be submerged because you have got to let the truth overcome error in your life. And it may not happen right now. It did not happen the first time I read Among Snares. I was like, oh, praise the Lord. I've been wrong all along. Heart set at liberty. It was not that quick. It took time. But submerging yourself in the truth really does combat error. And it also really helps if you can surround yourself with a loving community that does represent Christ correctly, such as my wonderful family and um, other people that really played that role in my life also um, as I was processing and healing from that circumstance. And if any of you who have, statistically there are a very large number of people in this room who have suffered such things, who have gone through things that have really burned them. If you have, take it from me, take it from my testimony, you can heal. You can come out the other side strong and then you can use that experience that you went through to minister to other people and to reach them and say, yes, it is a dirty world, but God's grace is greater, and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There is freedom and peace in Jesus Christ. Understanding ourselves, moving, moving right along, we're going to have to move very quickly. Okay, what if we feel? So, correcting our view of God. First thing, give me your eyes. Anoint my eyes with eye salve so I can start seeing you the way you are, and not the way I think you are. And then anoint my eyes with eyes have so I can see who I am. What if we feel self-satisfied or worthless or guilty or superior or proud or never good enough? 
No man can, uh, can of himself understand his errors. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not feel. We can easily deceive ourselves. While speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility. Isn't that unfortunate that we can be that way? And exalted righteousness. In one way, in one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. What are those next words? We must behold Christ. It is ignorance of him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. When we contemplate his purity and excellence, we shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will be not through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace, the righteousness of this Christ applied to me. The prayer of the publican was heard because it showed dependence, reaching forth to lay hold upon omnipotence. Remember what he was saying? Very simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I say unto you, that man went home justified. All sins clear before God. Self to the publican appeared nothing but shame. Thus it, may be, thus it must be seen by all who seek God. By faith. Faith that renounces all self-trust. By faith. The needy suppliant is to lay hold upon infinite power. No outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man, listen to this next sentence, but no man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish this work. This goes back to what we were talking about yesterday. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, because I cannot keep it pure for you. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me up into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Will God ever fail to answer such a prayer? No, never. I wanted to talk about this next thing because it talks about... Mm, I'm going to have to cut something out. I'm trying to decide what to cut out, if I should cut this out or something different. Um, I'm going to move past that. Okay. The essence is, the essence of understanding ourselves is renouncing our own value. We as humans want to, I was talking to somebody who, uh, yesterday who came up after the, the message. And they were talking about, you know, how I shared my message yesterday for those of you that were here, that when my fiancé first wanted to get to know me, I was like, well, why do you want to get to know me? And I felt like if there was something that I needed, that I needed to have like something like inherently in myself that he really wanted that would justify why he was wanting to come after me. And I have learned through interaction with him that true love never bases its love upon something other than just the preciousness of a person. Love is, frankly, for its own sake. If I love someone, this is the example I gave yesterday, if I love someone, if I fall in love with someone because they are a fantastic musician, what do I love? The person or the music? The music, and if they ever lose their ability to you know, play amazingly on the piano, am I going to love them? No, that's a pretty trite example because you can maybe be attracted to somebody originally and then 
move to a much deeper level of love. But if God loved us because of our performance, what would happen when our performance disappeared? They wouldn't love us. What if God loved us based upon, you know, okay, you, you see my point. God loves us not because of something. He loves us separate from something. And that is what true love is. It is not loving you because you are this or because you are that. Because that is not loving you. That is loving this or that. And if this or that was removed out of your life, I would not love you anymore. True love just focuses on the person. And in return, accepting that love from God means letting go of having to have that inherent value. Our inherent value comes from the fact that he loves. Not something, something, some kind of merit of ours, but just because he loves us. Just because we're his child, as Sebastian says, your belief affects your behavior. Understanding that you are his precious child, that our sin does matter, it does grieve him, but he pays. The essence of understanding our own selves is renouncing our own value, that I need to be someone, that I need to be something, and simply and rejecting placing our confidence in anything that I can do apart from Christ. And instead, embracing our nothingness joined to his fullness. All right, there's a huge amount under this topic of understanding God and understanding of ourselves that I have not been able to say today. I would encourage you really to make it your study because understanding God and understanding yourself as you relate to him because that's the only way in which we have value. He is our creator and without him we could not breathe, we could not speak, we would not exist. Understanding him and ourselves as we relate to him is one of the most important studies in the universe. Living in heaven. So this is shifting gears a little bit from the concept of understanding God and understanding ourselves and having that clarity of understanding to having a clarity of understanding of looking at the world around us, looking at our circumstances. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. By the way, that's one of the most encouraging promises, that he has power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That includes my heart. Glory, hallelujah. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Our citizenship is in heaven. One of the biggest struggles that humanity has is shifting from the right here and now what I can see, what I can smell, what I can touch, what I can handle, and being able to see through the eye of faith what we were talking about at the first in the first presentation to the unseen which is by the way more real than just what we can encounter right here to stop thinking oh, i need to have it for i need to have it set up for myself here on earth i need to have that good life here on earth and recognize that our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we wait for the Savior. From heaven. And what happens to us on earth, this is what made, made the martyrs throughout the ages so strong. Because their citizenship was in heaven. And if their poor mortal bodies were destroyed, they knew that they would receive an immortal one from Jesus Christ when he came. Because their citizenship was in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moss and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moss nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
We have some, um, we're EMTs. My brothers, well, all of my siblings are, my sister's also a nurse, and we all have other occupations as well, but we still do it. It's a way to serve our community um, to run on our, our local ambulance. And um, as Maria was mentioning the other day, Thursday, when she gave her testimony, um, EMS tends to be a very secular atmosphere. And it tends to be a very um, kind of calloused atmosphere because when you go and you experience people who are suffering and hurting and you try so hard to save this patient's life, you know, and you fight for two hours in the ambulance, my brother and I did fought for two hours in the ambulance while we were transporting this druggie into the hospital to save her life. She was in there for a huge amount of rehabilitation. She was released and two months later she overdosed and died. And when you fight so hard to save someone's life and they die anyway, it's not very nice. And so EMTs, unfortunately, tend to callous because it's like, how else am I supposed to deal with the fact that this, this abused child and fighting for this person's life? And they died and they died and they died and they died. Anyway, so it tends to be a very secular and very callous atmosphere. Well, we have some, our coworkers, and they are really, really precious people. We, we love them very much. Um, but they're not Christian. They don't profess to be Christian. They don't have any professed faith in God. They're completely secular people. And we have had conversations with them occasionally about God, but they have absolutely no basis for belief. Now, they do respect our beliefs and our convictions and that we live by them so clearly, but to them it's like, you know, why be a Christian? Like, they have no, they have no, nothing to base this concept of, I, I would, you know, deny myself anything on earth, or I would restrain, from, you know, refrain from this, or refrain from that. No concept, because it's just like, they're not even sure, you know, how do you know that they don't, they're not atheists, they're like, they're not going to say, well, God doesn't exist, but they're like, well, maybe, maybe God does exist, but how do you know it's a, you know, it's a he, maybe it's a she, maybe it's a, maybe it's a something completely different, like, they have, like, no, no concept, and I don't think God is a he or she, as we understand it anyway, but, they, they just like, they don't know what they believe and they don't really care. And I was thinking about various conversations we have and their perspective is very much, why would you be a Christian? Like, why would you deny yourself when the reality of the issue is, when you take into account who the God of the Bible is, when you take into account his power and that he is the magnificent, omnipotent king, and yet the very hairs of your head are all numbered and not a sparrow falls to the ground without him, and he wants to protect you and to love you and to watch over you, and no matter what negative thing happens in your life, he has staked his throne that all things will work together eventually for good. Even the negative circumstances will eventually, by his grace and by his power, be turned around to be a blessing in your life. Like the fact that I was molested, I tell you right now, that is only a blessing in my life because it enhances my ministry and my ability to reach out to other people. There is no pain left with it. Glory to God. He has turned even the most negative of circumstances into something that is positive. He has promised he will do that. The question is not, why would you be a Christian, but what in the world would possess you not to be? What in the universe could convince you to ditch God and for the sake of a few years on earth to do something else and then an eternity of... miss out on an eternity of heaven? Listen to this next thing. 
This was written by an atheist, and maybe some of you have heard this, but it's good to be reminded. Written by an atheist, if I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that's us, we're among the millions that say they do, that the knowledge and practice of faith in Christ in this life influences destiny in another, faith would mean to me everything. Written by an atheist, I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Faith would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I would labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequence should never stay my hand or seal my lips. Earth, its joys, its grief would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the souls around me soon to be everlastingly happier, everlastingly miserable. Obviously, he had a misunderstanding of hell, but that is what Christianity is preaching. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, this atheist clearly has a fair amount of biblical knowledge, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? C.T. Studd, one of the greatest missionaries that has ever lived, when he was a young man and an incredible sports star, renowned in Great Britain, in Australia, and in America, and a billionaire. He inherited what is, would in today's currency be multi-billions of dollars from his father when his father died. Read this atheist tract and turned his life, the life of a career athlete and incredibly famous and incredibly wealthy man, he turned all of his back on all of that and he went to be a missionary. He died penniless. He died having waned, gained thousands of souls to Christ. And in heaven, do you want to know what his mansion is going to look like? My citizenship is in heaven. But what things were gained to me? This is the Apostle Paul talking after he talks about his whole list of earthly accomplishments, he ends by saying, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God, by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In other words, this is exclusively what is truly worth living for. Because 40 years on this earth, 50 years on this earth, even 70 years on this earth is nothing compared to what you can have in eternity. Roger Morneau, how many of you in here have heard of Roger Morneau? Okay. Wonderful. I, I'm, I'm glad to see that. He started on this road of, uh, down this road of, of uh, Satanism. He was going to join a Satanist temple and become a Satanist and, and, and commit himself to the devil for the rest of his life. And then at the very last minute before he was going to be initiated into, into the Satanist temple, he, he turned his life around and started studying with an Adventist and he became an Adventist. And in his book, A Trip into the Supernatural, when he, when he tells his testimony of how he came out of Satanism and came into Adventism, he talks about right after he had changed his mind and he decided not to, a demon actually came to him and was asking him, why are you turning down joining the Satanist group? Why are you doing this? 
We have promised we will make you wealthy. We have promised we will give you every single thing you want in life. We will do this. We will stand behind our word. Why are you ditching us and going over to Adventism? We will make sure you stay poor. We will make sure you're, you lose everything in life that's worth having. We will, we will hound you all the days of your life, is what the demon told him. And his response to the demon, later he said he never should have talked to the demon. He said that that was a very, very, very unwise move, but God knew that he was ignorant, and so God kept him safe. His response to the demon was, look, I appreciate that you're offering me money. I appreciate you're offering me a big house. I do want those things, but there's one thing you can't give me, eternal life. And if I go with God, I will have lots of money and a big house in heaven and every other, uh, earth, every other advantage I can have and eternal life. So I will, I will put up with you giving me poverty for my earthly life and eventually I will have everything. That is the way a Christian thinks. The devil does not offer us anything that God cannot offer us. Money, popularity, fame, none of that. What is, what is some human, some scrawny human thinking that we're really something as compared to God thinking that we're really something and, that he, and, and, and living with the eternity of sitting with him in his throne? Incredible. Earthly vision thinks, why would I be a Christian? Heavenly vision thinks, what madness would induce me to live without him? What foolishness would drive me to take earth over heaven? Last five minutes we have learning to see through God's eyes to the world around us. Who is the most important? When the Son of Man will come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. And he shall say to the sheep on his right hand, and set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's all that wealth and everything that Roger Morneau was talking about right there. But why? Why are we called to inherit it? For I was in hunger and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And when he calls the goats cursed and says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into fire, they're like, Why? And it's because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. And goes through the whole litany, and when he comes to the end, they're like, Hey, when did we see you hungry and didn't feed you? Translation, if we had seen you hungry, we would have fed you. If we had seen you thirsty, we, would have, we just never saw you. And that's what it boils down to. Eyes to see. We never saw you hungry. We never saw you thirsty. We never saw you a stranger. The ones that, on earth, the ones that are the important ones are the rich, the famous, and the powerful. In heaven, the ones who are the most important ones are the weak, the sick, and the vulnerable. Those are the ones whom heaven will pour out for. Christ was the strongest of all. He was above all. And who did he come down for? Who did God choose to sacrifice? 
The weak, us, or the strong. He sacrificed the strong for the weak. That is the pattern of heaven, and that is what he expects of us. I'm going to have to skip that next one. Um, with unfailing tenderness and gentleness, he met every form of human woe and affliction, not for himself, but for others he did labor. This is Christ. He was the servant of all. It was his meat and drink to bring hope and strength to all with whom he came in contact. We largely tend to forget. We can get so focused on our own suffering and our own circumstances that we forget the condition of the world. 147 million orphans. 147 million orphans, and that does not include street children, traffic children, forced child labor, child soldiers. 147 million and those. 25 million slaves in the world right now. That is more slaves than were in the world when William Wilberforce and William Pitt, uh, when William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in Great Britain and America. We say, oh, the slave trade ended in the 1800s. The slave trade is alive and well today. There are more people enslaved now. Who is going to be the Abraham Lincoln in this day and age? Who is going to be the William Wilberforce, except we're dealing with a much more difficult situation because in their cases, it was just that, it was just the, the slave trade of trading Africans and, and buying and selling them. And now we have something that is much more entrenched in spiritualism. And a, it is an abomination. And 25 million, mostly women and children, are caught in the sex trade being exploited and their lives are just disposable. Who's going to do something about that? It says in Proverbs that if we're like, if we forbear to deliver those who are given over to death and if we say, oh, we didn't know about it, it says, he that keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to every man according to his works? God expects his people, if they have eyes to see, that Christ himself is enslaved on planet Earth in the person of these people that are being tortured and killed every day, forced in the most horrendous and humiliating and the most intense suffering that people can experience. If we do not have eyes to recognize that Christ in their person is suffering on planet Earth, then we have eyes of goats and not the eyes of sheep. It says in Isaiah 58, Isn't this the fast that I choose? Not putting the, the ashes on our head, not sitting in bulrushes and, and mourning. He says, Is not this the fast I choose? To loosen the bands of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, you recognize Christ there and you cover him, and you do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then listen to the promise. Then your light will break out like the dawn. Then your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the accusations, and they did this, and they did that, and there, he says, put that away from your midst. 
the putting forth of the, speak, the finger and the speaking of wickedness. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the midday. Who wants that experience? I sure do. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. If we're willing to start applying ourselves and entreating God to give us a new view of him and by so, so doing we will have a new view of ourselves and a new view of the world and, and the importance of heaven and how it is folly to exchange heaven for earth. And we receive the eyes of the sheep that see in the hungry the person of Christ, that see in the naked the person of Christ, that see in the enslaved the person of Christ and they don't sit in their homes while Christ is enslaved. What would we think if Christ was literally enslaved and all the Christians sat in their homes and twiddled their thumbs. But that's what we're doing. That is what I am doing every day when I do nothing. Then our light will rise in obscurity and our darkness will be like the, like the midday. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see you. That's what we need the most. Eyes to see who you really are in our experience, who you really are in the earth, who you really are in the Bible, who you really are in the person of those suffering and hurting around us. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith to move beyond just our feelings and accept your word as reality. Give us faith that when, we, when we're encountered with how we feel about who you must be and what the word says about whom you must be, we go with your word. Give us the faith that goes and attacks those Jerichos in our lives. O Lord, pour out your salvation upon us. Clothe us with your righteousness. And in so doing, our love for you will be passionate and intense even to death. Bless us now as we go into the rest of the today and bless the last bits of the Sabbath before the sun sinks. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.